All right, why don't you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 for our time in God's Word this morning. As we are returning to the Sermon on the Mount for, you might say, a relieving passage. I don't know if you still watch the news or read the news, but news today is, I think, in a word, heavy. It's not always bad news, but it's always serious. No one has ever said, you know, I'm in the mood for something light and uplifting tonight. I know, let's watch the news. <laughs> for some reason, trouble sells. There's always trouble to be found. This is especially the case that we live in a, a global news era. All the troubles of all the world are piped into our news feed. And there's always something going wrong. It creates this thick, heavy tension all the time. The world is a mess. It's heavy. In a somewhat similar manner, this Sermon on the Mount is heavy. Not quite in the same way. The Sermon on the Mount is not bad news. It's not false news. Jesus is giving us the words of life. We should not tune them out or turn it off. But it is heavy. No one would ever confuse this sermon with being light and fluffy. It's not jovial. It's serious. There's a gravity to his words. It is heavy. What makes it so heavy? Well, Jesus is presenting some very serious subject matter. The the religion that the religious leaders of Israel had formed was like this big gushing river. Everyone was just going with the flow. The only problem is it, it was heading the wrong direction. They were going away from God, leading to this waterfall of perdition. The way of the religious leaders was the wrong way to the kingdom of God. So Jesus comes, and in this sermon, it's like he's standing right in the middle of the river, trying to wake people up and and show them they're going the wrong way. He confronts them and tries to awaken them. They're going the wrong way. This is not the way to the kingdom. He knows the way. He's going to point the way. He is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life. And in this sermon, he's, he's showing the way. In all, this sermon is one of confrontation, conviction, and correction. It is, in a word, heavy. And it's only going to get heavier near the end in the home stretch here of chapter 7. He's going to repeatedly address the, the topic of judgment. As he contrasts now two ways, there is a broad way with a very wide gate and it leads to destruction and not a few, but many find it. There is in contrast, a very narrow way with a a small gate and that leads to life, but only a few find it. These are heavy words. And before we get there though, there is one passage in between that offers, you might say some relief, some rest, some respite before we journey on. We find some comfort, some encouragement in this sermon. It's the knowledge that despite all this heaviness, God is our good father who is in heaven. And he's, he's for us. He's not against us. He is for us. And we have the promise that this good father delights to give good things to those who ask of him. <clears throat> ask of him. If only they would ask. Matthew 7 verses 7 through 11 That's our passage where Jesus returns to the familiar subject of prayer. This time he's less concerned with instructing us about prayer, more concerned with just getting us to pray. We're reminded that help is but a prayer away. Help to enter this kingdom by faith. Help to live out its righteousness by faith. Help to persevere by faith. Everything we need for life and godliness is but a prayer away. And despite the heavy subject matter of the Sermon on the Mount and its high standards, if you know Christ and if you follow him in his way, you can rest assured that God now is your father in heaven and he cares for you. Just that news alone should lighten your load and melt your burdens. God is for you. Let's read now. Let's be encouraged by this promise he gives to us. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Listen as I read. Where Jesus says next, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf? Will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? 
Now, Jesus has had a lot to say about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount so far. Back in chapter 6, he warned us against the hypocritical prayers of the scribes and Pharisees. He also warned us against the meaningless prayers of the pagans. Then he went on to give us his model prayer, which we often call the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. Here, though, he's reminding us just that God, God hears and answers prayer. Help is available to those who ask, seek, and knock. But this text is not just about prayer. It really is more so about God. Being justified by faith, we we no longer fear God as judge. Now we we get to know him as father. We are his children. There's one essential difference, though, that God, unlike human fathers, he's good. He's perfectly good. And that means he always has in mind what is good for his children. You have to be convinced that in Christ, God is for you not against you. And his power is available to help you live like his son, Christ. Everything you need for God, uh, for life and godliness, God will not hold back from his children. All you have to do is ask. There is a precious promise in here that we need to lay hold of, and that's what this text is all about. What I want to do now is just help us walk through these verses and see how they build up to this promise. You might say there are three steps to see how Christ's teaching on prayer builds up to a precious promise. I want us to see that. You'll see how these all build on one another. Three steps to see how Christ's teaching on prayer builds up to this precious promise. So let's go through this a little more detail. The first step we could say is persist in prayer. The first point that he makes, he'll build on it, but he says persist in prayer, verses 7 and 8. He says again, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now first, I want you to see how the the central verb in this whole passage is ask. is used once in every single verse here. He begins with asking. He ends with asking. Verse 11 makes clear he's talking about asking your father in heaven. So we're talking about prayer. More specifically, this would be a prayer of petition. The same verb was used back in chapter 6, verse 8, where he reminds us that your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask. That doesn't mean we shouldn't ask. God tells us to present all of our requests to him, and that's, that's what this is about, making our requests. We ask. Just make sure you don't confuse petitions with demands. We never demand of God. You can ask, you can seek, you can knock, but not demand. Because we are not the Lord. We maintain a proper reverence and respect, recognizing our our dependence on this God. And so what we ask, we make our requests. Would you ever withhold water from your child when, when he or she is thirsty? And you're out on a hike, it's hot out, they're panting. You have extra water in your bag. So would you, would you withhold water from them or would you give them water? Of course you would give them water. You care for them. But at the same time, would you be okay with them demanding water from you? I hope not. I think you would be right to reprimand the four-year-old who, who says, who demands, you know, give me water right now. <laughs> Your child might know that you're going to give them water no matter what, but that's beside the point. While parents are to care for their children and will, children are to respect their parents. And so we teach our children to kindly ask For whatever they need, even if they know they're going to get it, they're still to kindly ask for whatever they need. Likewise, though we can count on God to freely give us what we need, we're to still come before him humbly, dependently, and ask. All right, so Jesus is here dealing with the prayer of petition, but he, he goes beyond asking and includes seeking and knocking. And it very well may be that Jesus means Nothing additional by these two extra verbs, seeking and knocking, just two more metaphors on prayer. But I appreciate the insight from noted commentator Hendrickson, who argues that these three verbs, they're all speaking of prayer, but they're really addressing the point of persistent prayer. What is seeking? You might say it's asking plus acting, meaning it describes the person who's actively trying to obtain what he requests. Seeking, you might say, is an intensified form of asking. And then what is knocking? Knocking is asking plus acting plus persevering. 
as Hendrickson puts it, it's, it's an intensified seeking where you're knocking over and over until you get a response, until your request is answered. To invoke another parenting illustration, those with toddlers or little ones know very well what persistence looks like. And sometimes a kid will play outside and they'll forget to unlock the side door. So they will inadvertently lock themselves out playing outside. They'll, they'll come back, want to come back in. They start knocking and they just keep knocking. And maybe you're busy doing something, maybe you're with the baby, maybe you're resting, and so you you don't answer, you just kind of hope they'll go back to playing. (laughs) But you know it's no use, they'll just keep knocking and keep knocking. You know it's just better just to get up and go answer the door, they're not going away. And then usually they have a very non-urgent question like, can we have a snack? But you have to respect their persistence. Because at the very least, it shows that they really think they need something and they really believe you are the only one who can help them. And our persistence in prayer shows the same thing to God. I should point out that these three verbs, ask, seek, knock, they're present active imperatives. That just means that they're communicating an ongoing or repeated action. There's an ongoing sense here. It's why the HCSB translates this as keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. This is not a one and done. There's an ongoing element to this. This is not the picture of just asking once or knocking one time. If you go to someone's house and you knock on their door once and only once, that means you you actually don't want them to answer the door, right? You're secretly hoping they're not home or they don't hear you. If this is how you regard prayer with God, at the very least, don't be surprised when he doesn't answer the door. I want you to listen to this parable from Luke 11, a, a parallel teaching on prayer. For the sake of time, you don't have to turn there, but Luke 11, 5 through 8, Christ teaching on prayer, he gives this little parable. He says, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, <clears throat> he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are, are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. But then Jesus says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. This is a a simple illustration with a simple point. It's not enough that this person's friend is in need. That's not a good enough reason to wake the house. Most ancient Near East homes were just one room. Everyone's sleeping in the same common area. You didn't want to wake the whole house, all the kids, just to get the door. But the other friend's persistence is what will drive him to finally get up and just help his friend out. Jesus is highlighting just one thing in this little parable, the power of persistence. But immediately after that little parable, Jesus says this. He connects the dots with his point. He says this. This is Luke eleven nine. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And yes, it appears Jesus taught this teaching on prayer on more than one occasion. But you see, in Luke, that's where he explicitly reveals his point. Namely, that in persistent prayer is effective prayer. When you ask persistently, it it will be given to you. When you seek persistently, you will find. When you knock persistently, it will be open to you. Three times he depicts the power of persistent prayer passively. And then look at verse 8 in our text. Three times he depicts the power of persistent prayer actively. Right? For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And him who knocks, it will be opened. He repeats himself. He's saying the same thing. This is just clearly for emphasis. But I think this is enough to establish our first point. The first step toward a promise that's being built here is just persistent prayer. Learn to pray persistently. Now, I still want to answer real quick why persistent prayer is effective. Because if you press Christ's parable too far, you might get the impression that, that God is like a bad friend who has to be nagged to help his people. But that is not the case. Jesus is going to teach the opposite. He is a good father. Jesus already taught us in chapter 6 that that meaningless, that repetition is meaningless in prayer. That the meaningless ramblings and repetitions of the pagans means nothing to God. Merely multiplying words 
does not make him hear you more. We don't pray to inform God. He's not ignorant. We don't pray to nag God. He's not reluctant. So then we ask, what, what makes persistent prayer then special or effective, you might say? And it has more to do with us than God. In persistent prayer, are we prevailing on God? No, but that's, that's not even possible. But we are, however, prevailing on ourselves. In persistent prayer, we're prevailing against doubt and expressing faith. In persistent, persistent prayer, we are prevailing against doubt and expressing faith. And this is why God regards it. He regards faith. Picture a couple of young adults are going out on a date. Guy says he'll pick her up at seven, goes to her house, lights are on, her parents' car is in the driveway, he knows she's home. So he knocks, there's no answer. He knocks again, no answer. He's waiting several minutes, knocking, there's no answer. He really, he knows she's home. So the longer he stands there knocking with no response, the more doubt creeps in. And he starts to wonder, like, does she not like me? Does she not want to go out with me? And instead of believing she must have a good reason for not coming to the door, that doubt can lead him just to stop knocking and walk away. And so it goes with prayer to God sometimes. When you pray and you ask, and sometimes you, you receive no answer, you knock, there is seemingly no response. You know God is home, but over time a little doubt might creep in. You start to wonder, does God hear me? Does he, does he care about me? Does he want me here? Is, is God good? But you see, as you keep praying persistently, you're prevailing against that doubt. You keep praying, trusting. No, he is there. He does care. You're also expressing faith because you know that God knows what is best. His timing is perfect. His will is better than your will anyway. And so if you're not receiving that request, it must be for a good reason. Until you learn better, you'll just keep persisting. You'll, you'll stand there and keep knocking. You'll keep praying, just trusting him to do what is right. That is faith. God is pleased by faith. And this is why Jesus extols persistent prayer. We never manipulate God into acting. But we do know that prayer is the primary means he has chosen for his people to express their trust, their dependence, their faith in him. And so as we stay there knocking, praying, we're, we're showing that we need him. We need him. We depend on him. But we also trust him. So we'll, we'll pray. We'll ask. And so I can ask you now, do you persist in your prayers? Do you think of prayer kind of like one and done? You, you offer something up, check it off the list. I prayed and just move on. Is that asking in faith? Or when you pray for something you believe is good, but you don't receive it, do you simply walk away? Do you stop knocking? Do you, do you ever give in to the doubt that I don't think God cares about me? It would be far better just to persist in faith until you learn God's will. But just take him at his word. Jesus is beckoning us to ask, seek, and knock uh, to the Father in prayer. Just to treat him according to his, his character. His character revealed in his word. Just take him at his word. What is that character? Is that if, if you are in Christ, he is your Father your good heavenly father. And this really is the next point Jesus makes, a second step in Christ's teaching on prayer that's building up to this promise. Secondly, we could say persist in prayer to your good father. We're building on that. Persist in prayer to your good father. Because what Jesus says in this passage, it's, it's really less about prayer, more about God, his nature, his character toward us who are his children. He introduces this with a little analogy, verses 9 and 10. He says, Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf? Will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? Here's a, a little comparison to human fathers granting the requests of their children. You'll notice the key verb again, ask. Verse 9, there's a child asking his father for a loaf of bread. Just a very simple word for bread used of their, their daily bread. This was their staple in their diet, just a loaf of bread. And so how's the father going to respond to this request? This child is asking him just for literally daily bread. 
Jesus asked rhetorically, will he give him a stone? Many of the stones that, that peppered the Palestinian landscape looked and resembled like a little loaf of bread in size, shape, and even color. But what a cruel trick it would be to substitute a loaf of bread with one of those stones and give it to your son. Like, what kind of father would ever do that? And the whole point is, none of them would. No, no good, no decent father would ever deny the good request of his son for what he needs just for life. It's the same verse 10. These are parallel, only now with, with fish. This is another part, another part of their staple diet. Now we're, we're almost evoking images of the little boy with five loaves and two fish that Jesus will multiply. But again, that's just, that was their staple diet. But how will the father answer this request? Will he give him a snake? You know, both have scales and a slippery water snake can resemble a fish. But this would be another cruel trick, possibly even a, a harmful trick to substitute a snake for a fish to your own child. I mean, it's obvious. No father who cares about his child would ever do this. And so Jesus just makes the obvious connection to God in verse 11, where he says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Key verb, ask, showing up again. You see here an argument from lesser to greater I mean, look, human fathers, they know how to give good gifts to their children, give what is good to their children. So how much more will your heavenly father, does he know how to give what is good to his children? But I'm sure you saw how this analogy, it goes even deeper. It's not just between human fathers and our divine father. There's also a contrast here between the evil and the good. You saw that, right, in verse 11, where he calls him out as, being evil. Let me make a few brief points on this. First, you know, with this, with this one verse, Jesus himself is completely affirming the doctrine of total depravity. He's under no impression that man is fundamentally good in his nature. Jesus knows humanity is fallen, lost, enslaved to sin from birth. His nature is oriented away from God. He's in rebellion against God's will, all just from birth. Man's nature is, in a word, evil. And Jesus does not even bother to stop and argue this point. He knows the heart of man. He states it as a fact and just moves on. Man is, in his nature, apart from the new birth, evil. Secondly, though, it's worth pointing out, Jesus does not include himself in this diagnosis. He says, you then, being evil, he does not say we. Jesus escaped the stain of original sin, being virgin born. He lived a sinless life. He was the only person who was ever truly good. He came to identify with human weakness, not human sinfulness. Third, I'll point out, there's there's likely a shift in audience here. Jesus is presenting this sermon. There's a a huge crowd gathered somewhere on on a hill above the Sea of Galilee. All the people are there just to see what's he going to say? What's he going to do next? But when he he sits down to teach, he gathers his disciples immediately around him. And he's primarily addressing this sermon to his disciples. But the crowd is still gathered around. And it's most likely here he's shifting his attention to that crowd. This is safe to say because the, the true disciple possesses a transformed nature. By grace, we receive new hearts. Hearts that are oriented now toward God, toward good. As Jesus said back in chapter 5 verse 8, His disciples are those who have been made pure in heart. And as he'll say later in chapter 7, verse 17, he's going to liken them to good trees that bear good fruit. We're no longer bad trees. We've been made new. But let's get to the point he's making in this verse. He's he's identifying human fathers. They're, They're wicked from birth. But he says, even though they're evil, the point is they're still able to give good gifts to their children. I mean, not all are as bad as they could be. And even the lost, they can still do good things, relatively speaking. It earns them no merit before God, but they can still make right choices and do the right thing at times. And, and in this case, that looks like you know, showing benevolence, showing care for your own children. The point then is, well, all the more so, what do you think God's going to do? He is not fundamentally evil. He's not even a little evil. He's utterly good. 
So will he not then much more do the right thing? Will he not much more show benevolence and care for his children? He will. And he expresses that by, by giving them what is good. And this is how you need to be thinking of God. John 1.12, it says, As many as received Christ to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. We are made children of God by grace through faith in Christ. And now, if that's you, you need to be deeply convinced that he is your good, loving, caring father in heaven. And because of that goodness, he's not going to withhold what is good from you. And if only you would ask. And that's the whole point here, that the second point, that you need to persist in prayer to your good father, right? Banking on the fact, this is a good father. It's a perfectly good father. Do you really know and appreciate the nature of the one to whom you are praying? Do you know your God? Are you counting, banking on his goodness to sustain you, to provide for you, just to help you? How do you think of God? Do you you think of God uh, as a believer, as judge or as father? God is judge. He is the righteous judge of all the earth. He will judge justly. This whole chapter in the Sermon on the Mount is dealing with judgment. you, You keep reading the rest of the chapter. It's mostly about who will be granted entrance into the kingdom, and who will be turned away. And there are more turned away than, than granted in. Like I said, it's, it's a heavy sermon. Jesus is warning of the judgment to come. Don't go that way. You better follow me. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and then comes the judgment. There's only one way to be spared from this judgment. We, we are guilty. Right? We're guilty as charged. We're justly condemned. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God would be only right to, to sentence us, to condemn us, to cast us away from his presence. That would be perfectly just. But the good news is that this judge, this God, is also merciful, compassionate, loving. And it was in that love that led him to send his only begotten son, Christ, to this world. To take on a human nature and a human body. To live as a man, sinlessly as a man, and then to die on that cross. And that's where Jesus suffered the penalty that was for us, that was ours, right? That the stroke of judgment that was due for us fell on him. And he suffered God's wrath in our place. Do you realize that? That no one goes free. Someone had to pay. Jesus paid in our place. God's justice had to be satisfied, but, but this sinless Savior took that justice, that judgment in our place, And being the son of God, he was able to pay for it all and rise again. And so now by his blood and and only by his blood, can we be saved? Saved from what? Saved from the wrath to come. Saved from this judgment of which Jesus himself warns. This is the good news of the gospel. It is fundamentally a message of rescue, right? And you read the book of Romans. That's the whole point. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. That's the bad news, and it's bad for us. We are unrighteous. But the good news, chapter 3, is that Jesus came to make propitiation, to satisfy that wrath by drinking the cup and dying in our place. And now those who repent of their sins and believe in him are justified, made right, reconciled, granted eternal life. That is very good news, and it's the only way. If you here today have not fled to this Christ for your forgiveness, for for the unloading of your entire debt of sin, do so today. Because it's only in him that we pass out of this judgment. It's the only way. Jesus said this in John 5, 24. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. This is the only way Jesus is the only way. And you get to this point where you, you've been justified by faith in him. Do you know now what it means? It means that this God, he's, he's no longer your judge. He's still judge of all the earth, but you've passed out of judgment. He's no longer your judge. We no longer relate to him as judge. We've been acquitted. I mean, we were definitely guilty. 
But Jesus stepped in, paid the penalty, and we go free. Not just free, we're, we're granted the kingdom, we're granted heaven. It doesn't even stop there because the same judge steps down after acquitting us in Christ and he draws up some adoption papers and says, now I'm going to even adopt you into my family. Not even as a slave, as a son, as a daughter. And then he, one step further, he's going to give us a full equal share in Christ's inheritance. He'll take it one more step and grant us the right, the privilege to call him Abba, Father, Dad. You know, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, have you noticed Jesus almost exclusively refers to God as my Father. And if you know Christ, then you get to say, as he led us to pray, our Father, who is in heaven. There's not one recorded instance among the Jews of them ever praying to God as Abba. They never called him Father. They, They did not relate to him that way. It's too personal. It's too personal, too informal. They didn't know God like that. But But Christ did, and those in Christ can as well. In Christ, God's smile never departs from his children. He he has set his eternal love on them, and Romans 8, nothing can separate them from that love. So have you come to know this God as your father? Not just the father, now your father. And if you're here, you've come to Christ, this is how you need to think of him, just in your daily life. He's He's my my dad, my good father in heaven. We don't think of him like a man, but you get the image. God himself chose this term father to how he is to relate to his children. This should secure you in his love, and this should completely change your prayer life. We're going to pray to God with reverence and respect always, right? We're not demanding, we're we're respectful. But at the same time, there's a comfort in that goodness, an assurance, a confidence we can approach him. He's, you might say, on our side now for us, not against us, like we said. You're meant to have that firm knowledge that by grace, he's, he's with us. Like we are his people now. I mean, he already gave his son for us. You think he's going to withhold lesser things now? He's, he's already given you everything in Christ. What, what else is he going to hold back? He will give us what is good. This should lead us to a deep-seated trust and an unquestioning reliance on him. That's where this should end. A deep-seated trust, an unquestioning just reliance, a dependence. You know he's not working out things to deceive you, to harm you, to deprive you. He's not scheming to give you a stone or a snake. He only has good in store for his children. We are assured that just as the Spirit enables us to call him Abba, Father, Romans 8, 15. So also he is causing all things to work together for good to those who love him, Romans 8, 28. And so we have to pray with this in mind. We have to persist in prayer to our good Father, trusting, relying, depending on that goodness. If you get all this so far, then, then you're ready to receive that last step because this culminates now in a promise Jesus makes. We can put it like this. Number three, persist in prayer to your good father to receive what is good. If you want what is good, persist in prayer to your good father to receive what is good. Just kind of let that be a, a type of promise we can take from this passage. When you put it all together, this is a promise he's leaving us with. Again, look to verse 11. He says, if you then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And so what is being promised here? What's the promise? As you pray persistently to your good Father, what? You will receive what is good. How much more will your good Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask, seek, and knock? Right? This is, that's a That's a special promise. This is a precious promise. We just need to make sure we're clarifying exactly what is being promised. So let's do that. It largely comes down to how we interpret this one phrase, what is good? What is good? Verse 11, God will give, he says, what is good to those who ask him. So how do we define that? What is is good to God? Let me give you the default interpretation of most people. They define what is good 
materially, physically, carnally, selfishly. Their baseline is happiness. And so what is good, well, it's just whatever makes them happy, that is what is good. And so to our flesh, this normally takes the form of material things, money, houses, cars. You could also take the form of personal well-being, health, healing, rest. And so many people take this verse as some blank check as if God is saying, your will be done. It's just whatever we want, we get. Whatever makes us happy, he's there to give us all, all we want. Just have to sincerely ask him for it. And your wish is his command. Already, such a notion should give you red flags. It's such a man-centered view of God and prayer. But, you know, nothing Jesus teaches us has been or ever is man-centered. Nothing about God, nothing about prayer is ever going to be that man-centered. I mean, the gravity of God's glory, it's like a black hole. It just draws everything to it. We all revolve around him, whether you recognize it or not. The difference is believers are those who should pray, recognizing that. Like we, we should pray like that. Here, why is it wrong to interpret this verse materially? Like he's just promising to give you whatever your heart desired, to fill your the desires of your flesh. Well, it's because Jesus and many other scriptures in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere just overwhelmingly make clear we are not promised material goods and prosperity in this life. You might receive it. Great. But we're no, by no means promised that in this life. What do most people pray for? You look at the, the average prayer request of any church even. Most prayer requests are going to boil down to something about health or wealth, prosperity, or comfort. It's kind of our default prayers. These are not evil desires. You can pray for that. It's just, it's not being promised to you. You want to pray for healing? You want to pay, pray for a pay raise? Please do. Let all your requests be made known to God, Philippians 4. We, we're going to present our requests, sure, but none of that is promised. You can't bank on that. And that's just not what this passage is about. We do not have a blank check promise for all of our material desires. Why don't you think about what Jesus has promised for his true disciples in this life? You want a little list? How about, you know, like suffering, persecution, rejection, mocking, ridicule, scorn, sums it up with a cross. You've been promised a cross in this life. Some, some might lose, lose houses for his name's sake. Some might lose health, shed blood, even lose their lives for his name's sake. That doesn't sound like a very comfortable life. But you really think it, it makes sense for Jesus to take all that teaching, just throw it out the window and hear, say, you know what? Actually, on second thought, if you just want anything in this life, just, just pray. Pray sincerely. Name it. Claim it. It's yours. I know what you and I want deep down as, as believers. You, you, want, you want peace. You want rest. You want comfort. You want joy. You want a life with no pain, no suffering, no death. Those are all good desires. And the thing is, God, our Father, has all of that in store for his children and more. But not in this life. This is a fallen, sin-cursed world. There will be more sin and suffering and death until all things are made new. Once upon a time or once in a future time, all these former things will pass away. They will be gone forever. But now is not that time. The life you're longing for, you realize it, it comes next if that's what you want, you really should be praying, your kingdom come. Isn't that how he taught us to pray? You're just longing for the kingdom. God has many good blessings in store for his people in this life, of course. But you have to realize overall, what is God doing in your life here and now? He's preparing you for that kingdom. This judge has adopted you, but before he brings you into his house, you need to be trained how to act like him, how to behave, live like him. I mean, glory awaits, but God is right now, he's glorified as his people. What did we read this morning in Ephesians 4? As we grow up in all things into the head Christ. He wants us to grow up a little, as he wills, before we enter the house. We are to learn to be like him, to follow his son, to put off sin, to put on righteousness. We're not earning anything. We're not earning salvation. We're, we're living it out. 
He worked it in us, this righteousness. Now we're, we're just working it out, living it out. That's his goal for us. He's, Romans eight twenty eight. he's causing all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. What is that purpose? The next verse, Romans eight twenty nine. to those who are uh, called according to his name, that you would be conformed to the image of his son. His purpose for us in this life after salvation is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. That is his driving force for us in this life. And so you have to understand, God has a different baseline for this definition of what is good. It's not happiness. We think what is good is just anything that makes us happy must be good. But not to God. To God, anything that makes us holy is what is good. At salvation, why did he give us the Holy Spirit? To make us happy? No, to make us holy. He's called the Holy Spirit. He's not called the happy spirit. <laughs> now, I do want to say, though, that the secret, the not-so-secret, is we actually find a deeper happiness and joy in salvation. We are and should be far happier than those without Christ. This is a joyous life. He came to give us joy. His his holiness is not divorced from true joy. We're just talking about that materialistic definition of happiness that, that drives most people. Jesus came that we might have his joy, have it in full, but it comes when we know him, when we are like him, when we're free from sin. And so back to verse 11. Is this what Jesus means in this text? There's this promise. God, God will give us what is good as we persistently pray. That's what he says. Can't argue with that. He will give us what is good as we persistently pray. Does Jesus have in mind here spiritual goods, not material goods? Can we back that interpretation up? Yes. Notice quickly in verse 11, this adjective good is always used in Matthew's gospel with connotations of moral goodness. A few more verses, it'll be used of good trees bearing good fruit. This word is not used materialistically, but spiritually to refer to righteous character and deeds. Second, this verb for seek, it's used only once else in the Sermon on the Mount, but it comes at the summit of the Sermon on the Mount back in chapter 6, 33, where we are told to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It's very easy to think that when Jesus uses the same verb uh, seek, he's evoking our, our chief command in this whole sermon to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, spiritual things. Lastly, the parallel passage I referenced in Luke 11 seals the deal because that's where Jesus made all this teaching much more explicit. He taught this on a separate occasion. He makes his point rather explicit. It's very significant. He changes the punchline. Let me read for you now how Jesus concludes this teaching in Luke. He says, ask, seek, knock, bread, fish, all the same stuff, right? But he, he says this at the end, Luke eleven thirteen. He says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see how Jesus substitutes that phrase, what is good now with the Holy Spirit? How can he do that? Because that's what he means. He's just elaborating on it, teaching elsewhere. It's, just, it's the same thing. That is what is good in God's eyes. It is the Holy Spirit with his gifts, with his fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, so on. That is what is good to God, which means that is what we should be asking for, seeking after, knocking to receive, right? That's our target now. Really, when you think about it, God would be Knowing, he just said, we're evil, at least before salvation, we still have the flesh. So knowing all that, he would be a terrible father if he just gave us whatever our flesh desired. What would you think of a human father who did that? Son walks up and says, you know, doesn't want to eat normal food ever again. No more healthy food. He wants like candy, shakes, ice cream, fries, steady diet, every meal. His father says, all right, that's what you want. And gives it to him every meal. Son says, I, you know what? I don't want to do homework or chores anymore. I just want to kind of play with my toys throughout the day. It's probably like, if that's what you want, that's what you get. The son's like, you know, I don't even actually ever want to go back to school ever again. I want to sleep in, play video games all day. And the father says, if that's what you want, you got it. Would you think him a good father? His kids might get taken away 
you would think him a terrible father. But look, that's how the child defines what is good. But as parents, you're supposed to know better. You know what is actually good for them in the long term. And so you might deny their request for what they think is good because you know better. And it's not because you don't care about them. Just the opposite. Precisely because you care about them so much, you're willing to bear their animosity, denying their request because you know what is actually good for them. You're going to lead them that way. So it goes with us and God. The only difference is we should give him no animosity or disrespect or complaining or doubting. We should just trust completely in his goodness, in his care, and his purposes. If you want to lay hold of the, the precious promise Jesus gives, you need to first conform your definition of what is good to God's definition, and then reform your prayer life accordingly. If you want material things beyond your daily bread, right? We pray for daily bread. You want material things beyond that? Go ahead, pray for them. So long as it's not an evil desire, pray. Let your request be made known to God. And then knowing it's not promised, then just trust whatever response you get, knowing it's for your good. Your God knows what is for your good, what's not. You pray, ask like a child, trust your father's will. You ultimately submit to his will. Because remember, he taught us to pray how? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you just let your requests be made known and say, but not my will, your will be done. And you submit. If you're desiring a perfect life, a a trouble-free life, a life free from suffering and pain, pray. But your prayer is, is your kingdom come. Like, your, your kingdom come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Do not lead us into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. You're praying for perseverance of the faith to endure to that place where those desires are satisfied. But now, if you, if you desire what is good here and now in this life, if you want what is good, then you should be praying for holiness. And that's where you gain a precious promise that God, God will hear you. You ask, you seek, you knock for holiness, for his will. He's going to answer. He will receive. He will give you what is good. And that is that which makes you more like Christ. So you be praying for that. Next time someone asks you, how can I pray for you? Don't think, you know, what would make me, you know, happier and more comfortable? Think what would make me holier and more Christ-like. Pray for that. Pray for that. And be praying for that for others. If you want to put a seal on Christ's teaching here, it would be the fact that this is the biblical model of prayer. When you challenge yourself, you read through all the prayers of the New Testament. Jesus, the apostles, Paul. Read through all of their recorded prayers. And, and you tell me how many times they're praying for the material prosperity, happiness, and just worldly comfort of the churches. Are you going to find any? No, but rather they are persistently praying for the, the spiritual growth and Christ-likeness and endurance of God's people. They're praying spiritually, exclusively. Listen to a few real quick. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Paul prays for the Philippian church. He says, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in the real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Colossians 1, 9 and 10. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. How about John 17? Christ's own high priestly prayer for the people, for the church future. He says, John 17, 14, I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And he sums it up in verse 17, where he prays, make them happy in the truth. No, he prays, make them holy, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This, this is how you should be praying. This is how you should be asking, seeking, and knocking. This is how you can be assured God will answer. And this is how you can find rest and comfort for your souls. You need to acquire the deep knowledge that God is your father and he cares for you. He is working for your good. He began your faith. He will finish it. 
His kingdom awaits those who know his son. And his power is available to enable us to seek first that kingdom and its righteousness. That picture has been painted all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And we've seen it. It's a heavy picture. Right? Even for believers, who can live like this? Yeah, we're justified by faith. We're not trying to live by, you know, save ourselves by works. We're called to live out the standard to please God. But even as believers, who can fully live out the Sermon on the Mount? Who's sufficient for these things? We're not, but God is. He's given us his spirit. And all the help we need for life and godliness is available if you would just ask, seek, and knock. You think of the sin that's nipping at your heels, the, the conflict that's dragging on, that the strife you have in your life. Be praying for that. Pray for your own and others' sanctification. True rest and comfort for your soul has come in Christ. Will you, will you go to him? in persistent prayer through God and receive this promise. Just like Jesus said and offers Matthew eleven, twenty-eight through 30, where he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Let's go to him now. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you through Christ, the Son, and the intercession of the Spirit, seeking your goodness. We thank you for the precious promise we've received from your word this morning, from the Lord himself, that you are our good Father, that you, you care for us, you made us, you made us in your image, and you remade us into Christ's image, that we had fallen and were evil, were astray, lost, and going down that, that river to the waterfall of, of judgment, you came in the way, called us, turned us around through Christ the Savior, his death, his resurrection. You bought us, you, you took us, you adopted us. And we now get to know you as our good, eternal, heavenly Father. We, we will even get to dwell with you in the eternal kingdom with your son forever. This is good news. This, this is privilege. This is glory, which we're not worthy, yet we receive all by grace. We thank you for your grace, the news that you're our good father. And help us now just to believe it and to live like it's actually true and to pray like it's true. Cast out our fear and our doubt and, and teach us to pray. But also conform us to your will and to your desires. You want what is good for your children. You know what that means. It is to endure this life, to be like Christ and to be holy and to reach the lost. And so conform our desires to your desires and convict us to now pray for us and for others for what is truly good, that we are sanctified in your truth. And so be with us this morning, convict us, make us more like the Savior. That is, that is good. And we just give you all thanks and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.